Um, okay, so uh, somehow we're even more behind. Um, I think we've missed like how many classes now? Four, five, something like that. So, but it's okay because we do have that optional extra class, um, strictly optional, and by strictly I mean strictly optional. Um, optional extra class, um, the day of, what is it, May 2nd? May 2nd, is it May 2nd? Yeah. Um, and so we'll talk more about heats then. Um, I hope you guys have started the Triumph of Life. Um, again, how many people now think they're memorizing it? Um, <laughs> I'm like a page and a half in, I don't know, <laughs> Okay. What? Easy A, or not an easy A, but easy to know that you'll get an A. Um, if you do it, no one else is memorizing? All right. Easy for me, too. I guess maybe I graded you too high on your first papers. Um, maybe that's what it was. Okay, um, so let's talk briefly um, about Adonais, the um, Lineford and the Bay of Lurici. So what, where you should be now according to the syllabus and according to me, um, even though obviously uh, we missed yet another day of class, but where you should be now is um, you should have read Adonais and the Lineford and the Bay of Lurici, and um, you should be reading or have read The Triumph of Life. It's not that long. It's you know half the it's the length of half a book of Paradise Lost, um, and it's um, it's amazing and it's basically what we're going to concentrate on. Um, but do and yeah, I guess one thing to say about the lines written in the Bay of Lurici, um, which may come up or may not, depending on how much time we have is that Shelley wrote it while he was writing The Triumph of Life. Um, the Triumph of Life, if you get the manuscript of The Triumph of Life, if you look at the manuscript, and there are editions of the poem which reproduce the manuscript photographically. Um, what you'll see is the lines written in the Bay of Lurici is that they are written on the back side of one of the sheets that Shelley's writing The Triumph of Life on. Um, so they're poems in which, th those poems are poems in which he's thinking um, about the same issues um, in somewhat different ways, but the poems are being written at the same time. They're um, strongly related to each other um, thematically. Um, he drowned before he finished The Triumph of Life, and one of the questions, that's why it ends in mid-line, uh, um, one of the questions is where would it have gone um, had he finished it? Where was that poem going? Um, a lot of the imagery is imagery that's recognizable from Prometheus Unbound. Um, in particular, the chariot. Um, in Prometheus Unbound, we get the moon coming in a chariot. In The Triumph of Life, the chariot is described as being like the moon um, when it comes. So there are some ways that we can see previous um, ways that Shelley handled the kind of imagery that you get in The Triumph of life. Um, if we had had time to do the Ode to the West Wind, um, which is, um, which you read, I trust, or will have read for the final for sure, um, that's a poem written in Terza Rima sonnets. Um, that is, it's five sonnets long, um, five 14-line sonnets long, and the sonnets are in this form, 
um, that Shelley also uses in The Triumph of Life, called terzarima, or what's the other phrase? Uh, yeah, which means? Chained rhyme. Chained rhyme. Um, because the middle line of each terset, there are three line stanzas, the middle line of each terset forms the outer rhymes of the next terset. So the rhyme in Terzarima, it's, it's vaguely a little bit like something that you may have gotten used to reading the Ottava Rima that Byron and Shelley wrote. Um, but the rhyme in Terzarima is A, B, A for the first stanza, B, C, D for the second stanza, C, D, C for the third stanza, etc. So every stanza has three lines. The middle line of each stanza is not rhymed within that stanza, but it provides the two rhyming lines for the next stanza. So A, B, A, the B isn't rhymed in that first stanza, but the next stanza is B, C, B. So the B picked up from the middle line of the first stanza becomes the outer rhymes of the next stanza with an unrhymed inner line, the C, which then becomes the outer lines of the next stanza, and so on. Um, the inventor of this form was Dante. Um, this is how Dante writes the Divine Comedy in Terza Rima. Um, so the entire Divine Comedy is written in this form. Um, Shelley does it, um, does the end of Terza Rima's slightly different from Dante. Um, Dante ends, let's say, um, X, or what would be, um, X, Y, X, and then instead of doing, um, but then he has to end it. So it's X, Y, X, and then he does one more Y, and that's the end of each canto of the Divine Comedy. So the end of each canto, you get, again, a last Herzerima stanza, X, Y, X, and then one more line, which is just the Y, in, which would be, could be, could feel like the first line of the next stanza, but it just ends there. So it feels like it ends in a quatrain. The way Shelley does the Terzarima stanzas of the Ode to the West Wind is A, B, A, B, C, B, C, D, C, E, F, E, um, G, G. He ends with a couplet leaving out the middle line. So um, Dante never puts two rhyming lines together. Um, Shelley ends um, the couplets in the Ode to the West Wind with two rhyming lines. But that's the only difference, and that's, a, that's what you have to do to turn it into a sonnet. Dante didn't write sonnets. They hadn't been invented yet. Um, but that's what you have to do to turn it into a sonnet. In the Ode to the West Wind, um, he talks about the wind as charioting. That's the verb he uses, thou who charioteth. Charioting. Um, the winged seeds to their dark wintry bed. That is, they are brought in the chariot of the wind, or they are brought by the wind as if in a chariot <coughs> to um, the dark wintry bed where they will spend the winter until spring comes and then they um, grow and sprout like they're doing now. Um, so there again you get a little bit of some of the imagery he's going to use in The Triumph of Life. That is the image of the chariot. We saw that image again in Prometheus Unbound. It's in 
the Ode to the West Wind. It's in a lot of places in Shelley. Um, it probably comes in Shelley's own imagination out of Milton, um, because the chariot of paternal deity, as it is called, is the chariot that the Son of God drives the rebel angels out of heaven in. Um, he he um, enters into this chariot, which somehow stands for his God's for his father's godliness, the chariot of paternal deity. That's what Milton calls it—a very strange term, the chariot of paternal deity. And in that chariot, he runs roughshod over the rebel angels. Um, this is in Book Six of Paradise Lost, and um, so what he does to them is what the chariot of life does to human beings in the triumph of life. Milton, just to trace this all the way back, Milton gets the idea of the chariot of paternal deity um, explicitly, um, quotes explicitly the book of Ezekiel, um, the prophet Ezekiel. Um, Ezekiel describes seeing, a having a vision of a chariot flying through the air um, drawn by very strange animals, very strange flying animals. And this chariot um, becomes part of Kabbalistic lore. Uh, Milton would have known this, but Shelley might not have. Um, that chariot is known as the Merkaba, if you know um, anything, um, or if you know a fair amount about um, Jewish symbolism. It's the chariot which is the presence of God. Um, so for Milton, that's the chariot of paternal deity, and in Shelley, it becomes the chariot of life, in the triumph of life. Um, okay, Adnaeus, did you like it? Say more. Um, it reminded me a lot of Lysias, which is one of my favorite poems ever. Good, yes. Um, how did it remind you of Lysias? Um, sort of the taking of like a well, I guess in Milton's case, it was his friend, and sort of uh, idealizing him. Yeah, Milton was no more friends with Edward King, about whom Lycidas is written, than Shelley was with Keats. Um, in the poem, they're friends. In real life, not so much. I mean, they knew each other, but yeah, but go on. Taking like a mortal person who died young and sort of idealizing him through um, sort of Greco or Yeah, um, so so basically, um, Adnaeus along with Lycidas is one of the two or three great elegies in English. Um, and by great elegy, it doesn't mean, oh yeah, great sad poem and how sad the poet is, but it's basically um, poems which do the work that elegy does, um, which is cope with the fact of death, and in particular the fact that poets die. Elegies about poets are um, a strange and ancient form because what you have is a poet writing the poem itself is the utterance of a poet. That's what makes it a poem. But when the elegy is about a poet, it's saying to be a poet um, is also to be someone who will die. Um, in a particular way that we have lost the poems of Lycidas, we have lo the unwritten poems of Lycidas, 
Um, Adnaeus has ceased to be before his pen could glean his teeming brain. Um, these things have happened before um, the poems they might have written have been written. So here's a poet who is in the position of um, being the living poet who could just as well be the dead poet. That is, an elegy is for a contemporary and a peer. Um, not, oh yes, in the last generation there was this poet and then he lived to be old and then he died and now I'm going to write a poem about how this poet died. But it's rather, we were friends, we were peers. Um, we were, um, um, we talked and we wrote poetry together or our talk was poetry. It's like Julian and Madelow in that sense. Um, that the winged thought um, didn't, doesn't cease, rested not, but flew from brain to brain. Um, and then somehow one of the two dies. And the other now writes a poem about the absence of poems from the dead person. And the work then of elegy is to try to come to terms with that, to come to terms with the idea that you have to write a poem somehow about the dead person. You owe it to them. You owe it to um, your friendship. You owe it to their honor. You owe it to poetry itself, to the fact that a poet is dead. Um, and yet writing poems doesn't do any good because you still die. Um, and so what you get in Lycidas and what you get in Adonais are poems which in some sense are about facing up to your own mortality. It could just as easily have been you. Poems about facing up to your own mortality. Um, in ways that generally people don't quite have to face up to in most poetry. Most poetry is essentially a way of saying, what I'm saying now really matters, and the fact that I'll die later is not what's concerning me right now. Um, if someone, if it's a sad poem about the death of someone in a previous generation, it's not, I'm going to die just the way that person died. It's rather, now my life is emptier because that person has died. But in an elegy for a contemporary and for a contemporary poet, then the elegy itself is the production of someone just like the dead person, a contemporary poet, a poet, your own um, peer. And that then means that you have to face up to your own fragility, the fragility of your own ontological status as a poet. Um, and as I say, the great elegies, there are a couple of others, but the really great elegies, the two great elegies, um, the two greatest elegies in English are probably Lycidas and Adonais. Um, and Shelley's very much thinking of Lycidas as he writes it. Um, so what, if you could, they actually both share a kind of very similar, maybe I'll just say this so that we can get to the Triumph of Life, because what we're going to do is go through every line of the Triumph of Life. It's the longest poem, probably, um, that you'll ever go through line by line um, in an English class. Um, but it's that great. Um, what 
the structure of Lycidas and Adenaeus essentially share. And it's a structure that you'll find in other elegies as well. Is something like this. Adenaeus is dead, or Lycidas is dead. That's the first thing that we hear. Um, the poet is dead. Um, and the world, because that poet is gone, the world is a worse place, a substantially worse place than it was before. The absence of the dead person has left the world, here to quote Freud again, empty and poor. This is in Freud's great essay, Mourning and Melancholia. Again, that's, um, you're more likely to have read that than Beyond the Pleasure Principle. Um, and if you haven't, that's a really good <laughs> introduction to, to uh, late Freud, Mourning and Melancholia, that when someone dies, we look at an impoverished world. The world itself seems impoverished. And that's really sad. The world is empty and poor, something that um, belonged to the world and made the world um, uh, rich and um, uh, invigorating place is gone. And so both Lysidas and Adonais spend some time looking at the emptiness of the world and looking at the intensification, the amplification of that emptiness through the fact that all the survivors feel that way. That is, that it's not only I who have lost Lycidas or I who have lost Adonais, but all these other supernatural or semi-divine beings are in mourning. They too have been brought low and the fact that they've been brought low is um, itself contributes to the emptiness of the world. If Adonais had never been born, if Lycidas had never been born, then the nymphs or the goddesses um, wouldn't have missed him, and the world wouldn't be quite so depressed as it now is. The sadness <coughs> is universal. The universal sadness is an index an indication, an indicator of the um, greatness of the person now absent. The immensity of that absence can be measured by the fact that his loss is felt everywhere. And what that means now is that if it's felt everywhere, everyone you go to, everyone you interact with, nature herself in Adonais is um, struck by that loss, is impoverished by that loss. So it's not only I'm missing something and my world is impoverished, but there's an external correlate to that, which is that everyone feels that their world is impoverished and that means that it's objectively impoverished because everyone is sad. If it were just me, then I could feel my world was impoverished, but I wouldn't feel that, I wouldn't feel entitled to think that was objectively true, although I'd be completely entitled to feel that it was subjectively true. 
I wouldn't feel entitled to think that it was objectively true because, as in the Intimations Ode, um, everyone else is keeping a joyous holiday. And um, if I alone am sullen, that may be quite legitimate and right for me, but it's not a truth about the world. And that might be something that it's not a truth about the world. But when Adonais dies, when Lycidas dies, everyone is sad. And so it is a truth about the world. It's a sadder world, um, a world full of sadder people than the world was before the death of this person. So something splendid has passed away from the earth, and the earth is thereby impoverished. That's the first thing that happens in an elegy. And the impoverishment of the earth is then described. The impoverishment of all its surviving denizens is then described. Um, the word survivor or the word survive, um, we tend to slightly misuse it when we say something like, um, you know, uh, everyone in the plane crash survived. Um, that's actually technically not the right use of the word survive. Survive means that someone has outlived someone else. Um, when you talk about someone has died and left no survivors, it means they were the last person in their family to die. But to survive literally means to live more than, live longer than, outlive, serve, above, vive, live. Um, so the um, idea then is here's a world of the survivors of the dead person, those who have survived him, who have lived longer than he has. That's an impoverished world. Um, we look at this world and we say, well, look how unhappy the world is. Um, Adnaeus or Lycidas, really, this world is not good enough for them. It's an unhappy world. So in fact, the fact that they've gone elsewhere is probably a good thing because it means they've gone to a place which is more appropriate to them to heaven in Milton's Lycidas and to some sort of platonic or Dantean heaven. Um, not a heaven, however, with, uh, with God in it, because Shelley continued to be an atheist, but a heaven of some sort of platonic transcendence when it comes to Adonais. So essentially what happens um, is a little bit like the converse or the supplement to what happens in the Intimations Ode in this kind of elegy, which is, look how sad, X is dead, the world is a shadowy and unhappy place now. Such a shadowy and an unhappy place is not a good place for someone as amazing as X. They must have gone to a better place that's a good thing. So what's happened here is, the, is that the loss of Adnaeus, or the loss of Lycidas, has made the world into a shadowy place. We then recalibrate 
and say the world is a shadowy place that's not a place for someone like Adonais or Lycidas. As though this general ontological fact, new fact about the world, which is that it's sad, as though that new fact about the world has become so deep and so universal that it is the truth about the world. And then, if that's the truth about the world, then it's not a good place for Adnaeus, because Adnaeus is greater than that. It's not a good place for Lycidas, because Lycidas is greater than that. So what's happened is something which had been the effect of the loss of the person, namely this sad world, is now re-understood as what the world itself is like always. And so the loss of the person is re-understood as a good thing, the person going to the place that's right. And if you just look at the very end of Adonais, um, the really beautiful end of Adonais, um, just look um, at stanzas. Um, Let's start at stanza um, 52. The one remains, the many change and pass. If you have line numbers, it's line 460. Um, the one remains, the many change and pass. Heaven's light forever shines. Earth's shadows fly. Life like a dome of many-colored glass stains the white radiance of eternity until death tramples <coughs> it to fragments. So um, life is like a stained glass window, <coughs> stains in that sense, but also a false projection of the light of eternity. So there's the white light of eternity, and then on earth, heaven's light is stained into the many colors of our world, but that's, those colors come from the fact that there's something between us and the one, something between us and the white radiance of eternity. And then death will trample it to fragments, like breaking a window, so that we can get to eternity. Everything that we see in life then, all the colors in this world, all the experiences we have in this world, are just filtered versions of the truth. That's a platonic idea. Um, where have we seen stained glass in Spencerian stanzas before in our course? Think Jules, think Sable. <coughs> the Eve of St. Agnes, exactly. Um, the moonlight that's cast um, through the stained glass on Madeline's breast, uh, um, through warm jewels upon her breast. Um, that's the iPhone. It always tells you twice if you get a text message. Um, they really want you to know. Um, so... Um, here, it's a really graceful allusion to the Eve of St. Agnes here 
um, turns into an utterly Shelleyan image. Um, what was just moonlight <coughs> in this poem about seduction here becomes the white radiance of eternity um, until death tramples it, that is, tramples the stained glass to fragments. Die if thou wouldst be with that which thou dost seek, the seek. Follow where all is fled. So if you want to be where it matters, follow to that place where everything fled. Roams as your sky, flowers, ruins, statues, music, words are weak. The glory they transfuse with fitting truth to speak. So even Rome, even everything there, all the great art of Rome, even the words of poetry can't, except very weakly, transfuse the truth itself. So he's writing a poem about how poetry can't um, convey the truth that it's attempting to convey, except like a stained glass window. Um, he's thinking here as well of the Protestant cemetery in Rome where his son was buried. Um, his son who died as um, an infant is buried, <coughs> and where Keats is buried. Has anyone been there? Um, if you go to Rome, as he says, you should go. The Protestant Cemetery is um, at the Pyramid of Sessions. Have people been to Rome? But you didn't go to the Protestant Cemetery? No, you, I was three, though. I mean, you haven't been since you were three? Um, what? Wait. Yeah, no, I, I was like six or seven. So. And you live in Milano, right? So it's not that far. No, I know. So when you go home, hop a train. <laughs> yeah, I know. Here, distances are much. Yeah, I mean, it's just, <laughs> I had a student from Wyoming who would, who would drive two hours to go to, to Burger King. Mm -hmm. Yeah, they'd say, hey, let's go to Burger King. So they'd get in the car, and they'd drive two hours, and they'd have their veggie whoppers with cheese minus, you know, and, 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 and fries and a Coke. And then they'd drive back. That was, you know, Saturday, Saturday evening. It was fun. Um, so Rome. All right, so in Rome is the Protestant cemetery, um, which is to say mainly a cemetery for foreigners because if you're not, um, if you're Protestant, you're very likely not Roman um, because you'd be Catholic. Um, so many foreigners are buried there, especially uh, people from Northern Europe, especially from England. Um, and in the Protestant cemetery is Keats's grave. That's what Shelley is describing. Um, Keats died in Rome. He died at, you've been to the Spanish Steps? Did you go to the Keats Shelley house there? All right, so Keats, Keats's room was at the bottom of the Spanish Steps in Rome. Um, and now it's a little, a tiny little museum called the Keats Shelley house. Um, that's where Keats died. And if you go to his grave, um, what you'll see is his gravestone, which simply says the death, which, which simply says the grave of a young English poet who in the bitterness of his heart um, at the um, ob <coughs> oblivion or something um, with which his work <coughs> works were received wished nothing else to be written on his gravestone except these words, here lies one whose name was written and that actually goes back to a Catullus poem. Um, but here lies one whose name was written in water. So it doesn't have Keats's name on his grave. You have to know it's his grave. Um, and um, the gravestone actually does have more than Keats wanted on it. All he wanted were those words. 
but the great stone explains that the young English poet wanted those words. Um, next to his grave is his best, was one of his best friends who died um, 30 or 40 years later, Joseph Severin, who nursed him in his last illness and is buried next to him but uh, many, many years later. And on his gravestone, it says the grave of Joseph Severin, the great friend of John Keats, who lived long enough to see um, that John Keats was hardly one whose name was written on water, but became one of the great English poets. Um, so that also tells you that <laughs> how, that decodes the, the neighboring gravestone for you. Um, Shelley is buried, Shelley himself is buried about 150 yards away um, by the grave of his young son. Shelley died a year after Keats, a little bit more than a year after Keats. Um, and so he, too, is buried in the Protestant cemetery. So, um, And there's some more interesting people buried there. It's a, it's a very beautiful place. Um, you should go there um, when you go to Rome. It's a thing one should do in Rome. So all these things can only weakly transfuse um, the, the truth that they wish to speak. Then he addresses himself. So Keats is dead. Um, what Adonais is, he said at the end of 51, um, from the world's bitter wind, seek shelter in the shadow of the tomb. Um, what Adonais is, why fear we to become? So he asks himself now at 53, why linger, why turn back, why shrink? my heart. Thy hopes are gone before. From all things here they have departed. Thou shouldst now depart. So his own hopes are gone. He's again thinking of his dead children um, and thinking of all his hopes. Um, why should he stay on earth? Now Adonais is dead as well. A light is passed from the revolving year and man and woman and what still is dear attracts to crush repels to make thee wither um, so anything you still care about in the world attracts the way a flame attracts a moth it attracts you to crush it if you love anything in the world um, the very fact that you love them is going to crush you, or if you try to get away from them so as not to love them and be crushed by your grief, then if you are repelled from them, you will wither and die. That is um, how he's seeing life now at the end of this elegy. Um, the soft sky smiles, the low wind whispers near his Adonais calls, oh, hasten thither. No more let life divide what death can join together. Um, what's he echoing there? No more let life divide what death can join together. Yes, yeah, do you remember the line? Men divide. Yeah, do not let, let man, do not let man sunder what God has joined. So life is dividing what death can join together. That is, if you died, you would go there. The light whose smile kindles the universe. So that's, 
practically a translation of Dante. Um, Shelley, um, Dante had not been translated um, into English until a little bit after Shelley died, until 1828 was the first full English translation of Dante. Um, Shelley read Dante in Italian and was obsessed with him, um, as was Byron. They both, both Byron and Shelley translated um, a little bit of Dante, translated um, passages from Dante. Um, and Shelley's translation of, it's the Matilda gathering flowers scene from Purgatorio. It's when Dante has parted from Virgil, um, who has brought him to um, the peak of the mountain of Purgatory, and now Virgil is gone. And Dante sees Matilda gathering flowers um, and is struck by the spectacular beauty um, of what's going to turn out to be the earthly paradise, um, where the Garden of Eden was at the top of the mountain of Purgatory. Um, Shelley translated that part, and it's a real into Terza Rima, as is appropriate. It's a really fantastic translation. It's probably the best um, line for line, the best translation of Dante that there is in English. And as you'll see when we do the Triumph of Light, especially if you know Dante, um, you'll see how much Dante seized Shelley's imagination um, and how Shelley transmuted it. So here, that light whose smile kindles the universe. Um, that's practically a translation of a line from Paradiso. Um, that light whose smile kindles the universe, that beauty in which all things work and move. Anyone recognize that um, phrase, which all things work and move? So that's from Corinthians. But in Corinthians, it's God. It's in God that we live and move and says Paul in Corinthians. But for Shelley, it's not God, it's beauty. Or they're the same thing. That is, what God is, is beauty. That's, a, that's, a, that's not Shelley's invention. That's, a, that's a, the philosophy called Neoplatonism. Not Platonism, but Neoplatonism. That is, medieval followers of Plato who said that the, that the unmoved mover in the universe was beauty itself. Yeah. Is that what beauty's yeah, exactly. So that light whose smile kindles the universe, that beauty in which all things work and move, that benediction which the eclipsing curse of birth can quench not. So there's a blessedness, a benediction, which the eclipsing curse of birth, what does that mean? Everyone goes through it, but what does eclipse mean? Just the word. Astronomers. Yeah. Literally or figuratively. No, it doesn't mean that. I mean, shadowy. Yeah, literally. What's an eclipse? Yeah, it's it's the it's the um, interposition of the, the moon getting between us and the sun, so it eclipses the sun, or in a lunar eclipse, we get between the sun and the moon. Everyone knows that? You're going to learn a little astronomy by hook or by crook. A solar eclipse will always happen um, when um, the moon is new, 
And a lunar eclipse, do you know this? That a solar eclipse always happens in a new moon because the moon and the sun are on the same side of the Earth. And a lunar eclipse always happens in a full moon because the moon and the sun are on opposite sides of the Earth. You know that that's the difference between a full and a new moon, right? Yes, good. Of course you do. I'm going to pretend. Um, a full moon means you're seeing the moon reflecting all of the sun's light, which means it's opposite um, from the sun. The earth is between the moon and the sun. When the earth is exactly, precisely between the moon and the sun, which is fairly rare, you get a lunar eclipse because then the earth's shadow is cast upon the moon. That's what a lunar eclipse is. Um, see the shadow of the... Um, <laughs> oh, no, no, I didn't quote this part. Um, but Freud talks also about mourning as the shadow of the object fell upon the ego. Um, so the shadow of the earth falls upon the moon, and that's a lunar eclipse. A solar eclipse is the shadow of the moon falls upon the earth. The moon gets right between us and the sun. In either case, um, an eclipse means a shadow where we're not expecting one. Um, something is blocked. So the eclipsing curse of birth means what is being blocked by what? Mortality. Sorry? Like mortality. Mortality is being blocked by? No, I mean that depending, I mean, I see the benediction. Yeah. Immortality. Right. Right, okay, so that when you're born, it's as though the light of eternity is eclipsed, that light which is itself a beauty and benediction, that light is eclipsed by birth, so you can no longer see it. Remember again the intimations ode, our birth is but a sleep and a forgetting. The soul that rises with us, our life starteth had elsewhere its setting and cometh from afar. Not in entire forgetfulness, nor in utter nakedness, but trailing clouds of glory do we come from God, who is our home. The youth who daily from the east must travel still is nature's priest. Um, oh, no, it's, I guess it's the boy who beholds the light and whence it flows. So the idea is that the reason when we're children, all of Shelley is always haunted by the intonations of it. The reason the world seems apparelled in celestial light when we're children is that we still see the light that comes to us from heaven. Even though shades, shadows, eclipses, shades of the prison house are beginning to close upon the growing boy he still beholds the light, and whence it flows, he sees it in his joy. So even though the boy is, the shadows are enclosing the growing child, and that's the eclipse is getting worse and worse, as a child, you can still see the light that's coming from heaven. So this platonic idea, now it's not neoplatonic, but platonic, this platonic idea is before birth, we saw heavenly glory where we lived. But when we were born, we came into this life, and that light, which is still there, was eclipsed by our birth. And that's why, according to Plato, birth is a sleep and a forgetting. 
we forget the world of the forms from which we come. That's Plato's idea. And that's what Shelley is picking up. So that light whose smile kindles the universe, that beauty in which all things work and move, that benediction which the eclipsing curse of birth can quench not. So even though it's an eclipse, it's not quenched. That sustaining love which through, which through the web of being blindly wove by man and beast and earth and air and sea burns bright or dim. So even though we blindly remember the, the um, six years darling of a pygmy size in the intimation zone, who is thus blindly with thy blessedness at strife. Do people remember that line? Um, he talks to, to Hartley Coleridge, to Coleridge's son, and he says, why are you so blindly with your blessedness at strife? There you are. You can see the light of heaven, and yet you just want to grow up. And you are at strife with your own blessedness. Shelley is saying what it means to be a born person, to be a human being, is, or anything on this earth, is to weave a web of being blindly, whether you're a man or a beast, or whether you're earth and air or sea, you're weaving, a, blindly weaving the web of your own being. But that sustaining love still burns bright through it. Remember the witch holding the, um, the, what she's woven up before the fire in order to dim it? But she can't make it completely dark, even though it's too intense for mortals. She, she does dim it, even as our own view of eternity is dimmed by what we have blindly woven. But even though we've done that, it still burns bright or dim, but it still burns through that web of being, the light of heaven, benediction and beauty and love. Still burns through the web of being. We can still see through it. Its sun protection factor never gets so high as to be entirely opaque. Um, and it burns bright or dim as each are mirrors of the fire for which all thirst. So the more we reflect that fire, that white radiance that everyone thirsts for, the brighter we see it in this world. So that light now beams on me, he says. So that light Line 478, now beams on me. That's where that sentence ends. Line 485, that light now beams on me, consuming the last clouds of cold mortality. So he is thinking of Keats up in that radiance and seeing it all the more brightly and clearly because Keats, who is dead, and who is therefore joined with that oneness and beauty, focuses his attention on it. Not this world, which is a world of blindness, and where Keats ought not to be, or Adonais ought not to be, but that world, the world of immortality. So then he ends, the breath whose might I have invoked in song 
descends on me. So I have called upon the breath of that world, the breath of Keats, the breath of the muse. Um, he's thinking here about the hymn to intellectual beauty, which he, where he invokes intellectual beauty, an early-ish poem, comparatively early poem, um, but talking about the same realm of beauty. The breath whose might I have invoked in song descends on me. So that's like invoking the muse. My spirit's bark is driven far from the shore, far from the trembling throng whose sails were never to the tempests given. The massy earth and spirit skies are riven. I am born darkly, fearfully afar. Whilst burning through the inmost veil of heaven, the soul of Adnaeus, like a star, beacons from the abode where the eternal are. Now, what he's describing here, it's very beautiful and very Shelleyan. And here you might think of the lines written in the Bay of Lerici. Um, but what he's describing here is an idea of going out, not to heaven, but going out into the ocean, into the darkness, like the second spirit. Adonais is up there in heaven. He's like the north star beaconing him, giving him um, a pole star to guide himself by. But he, Shelley, he's here in this strange, dark, um, fearful earth and out in the sea being blown darkly, fearfully afar. Just Hear the, hear the assonance again in those words. I am born darkly, fearfully afar. All those Fs, fearfully afar. And those R sounds, darkly, fearfully afar. And that's Shelley for you. Shelley is often and wrongly described as a kind of um, platonic esthete or ecstatic who um, is simply thinking about, oh, can't wait to join the white light of eternity, which is what you get in Dante. But what Shelley gets from Dante is more the sense of um, distance and um, magnitude of the earth and of being this small, fragile, frail being um, whose experiences, the intensity of whose experiences, not unity with beauty, but the intensity of those experiences out in the vastness of time and being. That's what Shelley's describing. Here you get in practically a single line, certainly in a single stanza, Shelley's account of the difference between himself and Keats. Um, Keats belongs to eternity. Shelley belongs to time. Shelley is like the figure in Elastor, um, that, um, that frail and wasted human form um, who is lost in the vastness of all that he sees, the vastness of the world. Um, not someone who's saying, oh yes, it's all beauty and it's all wonderful. Um, Shelley is a poem of melancholy, a poet of melancholy and loss. Um, 
And you see that even, although we did this too quickly, you see it even in Prometheus Unbound. Um, it looks like Prometheus Unbound gives you the triumph of light, the triumph of the overcoming of Jupiter and his oppression. But all that overcoming um, still risks further oppression. And what matters is the capacity to experience human um, experiences of other human beings rather than the idea that there is some transcendent world. This is what he's talking about in Mont Blanc as well. Um, it's what matters to the human mind that matters to Shelley. Um, okay, let's go to the triumph of life. Um, we'll get through a little bit of it today, and we'll talk more about it um, for our last two official classes. Um, <coughs> so, as I say, Shelley um, died in the midst of it. Um, the poem is very much based on Dante and actually mentions Dante towards the end um, when Shelley describes a wonder worthy of his rhyme whom through all hell and to eternal glory love led serene. Um, so towards the end of the poem, um, the character Rousseau is going to um, describe something that he saw that was so amazing that it was worthy of Dante. That's what Rousseau says. And um, that's an explicit um, uh, comparison of the triumph of life to what Dante is doing in the Divine Comedy. Therefore, it's right that you should know a little bit about the Divine Comedy. Um, the Divine Comedy, you probably know this, but nevertheless I will say it, the Divine Comedy is in three books, um, Inferno, Purgatorio, and Paradiso. Um, that is, say, hell, purgatory, and heaven. And its main character, who we find out um, in a little bit over halfway through, its main character, its narrator, is named Dante. Um, so Dante, the poet, is himself the, the figure within the poem, um, is guided by the poet Virgil, who had died 1,300 years earlier, the Divine Comedy takes place on Easter weekend of the year 1300, um, is guided by the poet Virgil, whom he meets at the entrance to hell. Virgil has been there since his death 1300 years earlier, been in hell um, for 1300 years. Dante meets him, and Virgil says, I've been instructed, instructed um, by the great ladies in heaven to lead you through some of the afterlife so that you can think about the truth and think about yourself and think about what you need to do in order to attain salvation. Um, I couldn't attain salvation because I was never Christian. I died before the coming of Christianity. Um, but I care, and I want you to attain it. So Virgil leads Dante through nine circles of hell. Remember who's in the second circle? 
Second Circle of Sad Hell. I'm quoting now. Where lovers... Sorry? The Whirlwind, yes. Paolo and Francesca. Um, the Whirlwind in the Keats, Paolo's Hermes once. Yeah. Um, Virgil leads Dante through all nine circles of hell, um, through the center of the earth, where Satan himself is pinned at the very center of the earth um, by a rock, um, out to the Antipodes on the other side of the earth, and up the mountain of purgatory, which I already mentioned, um, at the very top of which is the earthly paradise where the Garden of Eden was, at which point Virgil can lead Dante no more. That's the, as far as he can go, um, is to the place where the pains of purgatory itself finally um, come to an end. That's as far as Virgil can go. Dante um, sees something and turns to share it with Virgil, but Virgil is gone. He is then led from then on by Beatrice, the woman he loved who had died um, years before, maybe 12 years before the poem is set, but Dante writes the poem um, from something like 1302 to 1317 when he dies. Um, and Beatrice leads him through the rest of purgatory and through heaven to the last of the spheres of the heavens, which is where God is, the Imperium, where God is. Um, this is told in a hundred terzarima cantos. Each canto is about 140 lines long. Um, so this is told in a hundred cantos, um, all written in terzarima. And, um, James Joyce was once asked um, who he thought the greatest writer of all time was. And um, he said, I should like to say Dante, but in the end, I suppose I must say the Englishman. He is richer. Um, so by the Englishman, he meant Shakespeare. Um, kind of a, a dismissive way of describing Shakespeare. But what that means is that for Joyce, Dante is second to only to Shakespeare as the greatest of writers ever. Um, and um, that might be a pretty general estimation. Um, I mean, not a majority estimation, but maybe a plurality estimation um, that after Shakespeare is Dante. Um, so Shelley certainly thought so. Um, Shelley would have put Dante and Milton and Shakespeare at the very top um, of the greatest of poets. Um, the reason I'm giving you this little, very, very little um, description of what happens in the Divine Comedy is that the Triumph of Life feels very much like a hellish poem. And those like me who think it is a hellish poem that is, that this is a document of extreme pessimism and despair, um, have one view of the triumph of life. There are other critics of the triumph of life who think, no, we're only seeing the hell part of a poem based on Dante, which would have ended with some kind of heavenly, happy, heavenly ending and happy resolution to what 
we get. So um, because the poem is unfinished, you think it's very pessimistic. But had Shelley lived to finish it, the fact that he's taking Dante as his model means that it would have ended happily. Um, so that's the debate about the triumph of life, but I just wanted to um, have you have that in mind as we read it. So it begins with an induction. Um, that induction is sunrise. Swift as a spirit. Can you do it? How far can you get? Can you do the first um, part? Yeah. Up to where a vision of my brain was rolled? Yeah. Go for it. Swift as a spirit hastening to its task of glory and of good. Uh, the sun sprang forth. forth rejoicing in his splendor. The mask of darkness fell from the awakened earth. Smokeless altars on the mountain snows flamed above crimson clouds. And at the birth of light, the ocean's orison arose, to which birds tempered, to which the birds tempered their matin lay. All flowers in field or forest, which unclosed their trembling eyelids to the break of, to the kiss of day, swinging their censers in the element, with orient incense uh, lit by the new ray. Burned slow and inconsumably, and sent their odorous sighs up to the smiling air. Mm, up, to and, okay. um, wait, no, up to the smiling air. Um, and in succession, due did continent, isle, and ocean, and all things that in them were the form and character of mortal mold. Rise as the sun their father rose to bear their portion of the toil which he of old took as his own and then imposed on them. Um, before me. But I. Oh, but I, whom thoughts which must remain untold had kept as wakeful as the stars that gem the cone of night. Now they were laid asleep stretched my faint limbs beneath the hoary stem, which an old chestnut flung athwart the steep of a green apennine. Before me fled the night, behind me rose the day. The deep was at my feet and heaven above my head, when a strange trance over my fancy grew, which was not slumber, for the shade it spread was so transparent that the scene came through as clear as when a veil of light is drawn over, or evening hills they glimmer. And I knew that I had felt the freshness of that dawn, uh, bathed in the same cold dew my brow and hair, bathed in the same cold dew my brow and hair, Sat upon, as uh, sat as the, as this, as thus, yeah. as thus upon that slope of lawn, under the self-same bough. Um, oh, and heard as there, the birds, the fountains, and the ocean, hold sweet talking music, through the enamored air, and I. Uh, and then a vision on 
All right, yay. Mm -hmm. No, you got it. Yeah, it only gets easier. It does. Okay, so it's sunrise. Um, and the sun springs forth like a spirit, hastening to his task of glory and of good. That all sounds great. Um, and um, there's a critic named M.H. Abrams. He turned 100 last year. Um, he was my teacher in graduate school when he was a child of 66 or something, um, who um, thinks The Triumph of Life is very, would have been a very happy poem. And he says, oh, look how, how cheerfully it begins. And he quotes the beginning, swift as a spirit, hastening to his task of glory and of good, the sun sprang forth. So here is this spirit um, who wants to do something glorious and good. Night is over, it's daylight, hooray. Swift as a spirit, hastening to his task of glory and of good, the sun sprang forth, rejoicing in his splendor. So there, the brightest of things, rejoicing in his splendor. Hang on to that word splendor, which is a word that um, Dante uses all the time to talk about angels and that Shelley will use in a similar fashion. Rejoicing in his splendor. And the mask of darkness fell from the awakened earth. What does that mean? What's the image? Yeah. Yeah, the dawn, that the earth is covered with a mask of darkness. But now the mask falls away and we see the truth, which is the awakened earth. It's beautiful. Don't worry about the darkness. That's just a mask. Um, so it seems. The mask of darkness fell from the awakened earth. The smokeless altars of the mountain snows flamed above crimson clouds. So think what a beautiful image that is, that above the clouds at dawn, you see the snows on the top of the mountains, the white, like the white snows on the top of Mont Blanc, flaming in the sunrise. That is, they're turned pink or red or scarlet by the sunrise. So even though there's no smoke, because they're not burning, they are nevertheless flaming <coughs> above the crimson clouds. Um, you see them bright as though the snow is itself flame. And at the birth of light, <clears throat> the ocean's orison arose. So the ocean itself seems to be um, saying a prayer of joy um, at the birth of light. It's light, and you can hear the waves lapping. You can hear the sounds of the waters. The ocean's orison, its prayer arose. Where's the word orison used most famously in English literature? Readers of Hamlet. Hamlet breaks off his to be or not to be speech. Oh. Um, it's soft, you know. Fair Ophelia in her orisons and all my sins remember. Yeah, nymph in thy orisons, be all my sins remembered. So orison actually means morning prayer. Um, and he's saying, remember me in your morning prayer. So here the, oris the ocean's orison arose, to which the birds tempered their matin lay. So the birds are singing. Um, in harmony with the sound of the ocean. All flowers in field or forest, which unclose their trembling eyelids to the kiss of day, swinging 
their censers in the element with orient incense lit by the new ray burns slow and inconceivably. So diagram the sentence and what you would get were all, all the forest in the field, all the flowers in the field or forest burned <coughs> like the ocean, slow and inconceivably. But really like, I mean, like the, like the uh, smokeless ours, <coughs> excuse me, smokeless altars. Um, but it's, it's like incense burning. So all these flowers in the field and forest unclose their trembling eyelids to the kiss of day. The sun kisses them. The petals open. And when they do that, they swing their censers like censers of incense in the element. Element there means the air. So they're swinging their censers in the element, in the element with orient incense lit by the new ray, incense that comes from the east, lit by the sunlight coming from the east, like fire, causing them to produce their beautiful smells, lit by the new ray, burned slow and inconsumably, like incense burning forever, and sent their odorous sighs up to the smiling air. So the size of the flowers, their incense are sent up to the smiling air. And in succession do, this is still all happening in dawn, and in succession do, did continent, isle, ocean, and all things that in them wear the form <coughs> and character of mortal mold. So <coughs> all the geographical features and every mortal thing in them, all of these things in succession do, did rise as the sun their father rose. So that's as far as my teacher got in his quotation. Look how beautiful it is. They all rose as their son their father rose. And then dot, dot, dot is what he puts on the page. You can find this in the book Natural Supernaturalism. Um, it's just a gorgeous and beautiful induction. And look how joyous this is. They all rose as their son their father rose. Wonderful. And then what he leaves out is to bear their portion of the toil which he of old took as his own and then imposed on them. So suddenly, from one phrase to the next, at line 18, we get the sun rose and caused all things on earth to bear some of the toil which he said he would do but then imposed on them. So suddenly the sun is looking like a tyrant, like Jupiter, rather than like um, a god of joy, rather than like Prometheus, you could say, or rather than like Keats's Apollo. But I, whom thoughts which must remain untold had kept as wakeful as the stars that gemmed the cone of night, I'd been up all night like the stars. The cone of night, if you think of the earth and the sun behind it, the earth is casting a cone-shaped shadow into the night, and that's where you can see stars. So the stars that gem the cone of night, I was as wakeful as they were. But now, they were laid asleep, because it's morning. So I stretched my faint limbs beneath the hoary stem, which an old chestnut flung athwart the steep of a green apennine. So um, under the branch of a spreading chestnut tree, but this is before Longfellow, um, I lay down on the side of an Apennine mountain, um, looking 
westward, because before me fled the night, behind me rose the day. The deep was at my feet and heaven above my head when a strange trance over my fancy grew. So he's now going to try to sleep, but instead a trance comes over him. And it's a very strange thing because it's like deja vu. Everything is transparent, transparent. He sees what he's just seen. And yet he sees it in some strange new way. When a strange trance over my fancy grew, which was not slumber, for the shade it spread was so transparent that the scene came through as clear as when a veil of light is drawn over evening hills, they glimmer. So I could see just as much as when at evening a veil of light is drawn over the hills, and you can still see them because it's a veil of light at sunset, and they glimmer through the veil of light. And I knew that I had felt the freshness of that dawn. He is where he was. I had already felt the freshness of that dawn, bathed in the same cold dew my brow and hair, and sat as thus upon that slope of lawn under the selfsame bough. Nothing had changed except somehow it was all changed. And I knew that I had heard as there the birds, the fountains, and the ocean hold sweet talk in music through the enamored air. I knew that what I was hearing I had just been hearing before, but there was something different, some trance. And then... I had a vision, and then a vision on my brain was rolled. So we will begin with that vision on Friday. Memorize it. You'll love it. It'll last you your whole life. That'll be good.